Good morning and welcome. You're all awesome. Absolutely awesome. We're going to learn some awesome things in the book of Acts today, chapter 1. You might want to go ahead and get your Bible open up to that right now. As you're settling in, pull out a piece of paper, a pen, whatever you need, your iPad. Let's get it going this morning. While you're doing that, I want to introduce you to, uh, to some old friends of mine. Um, I visited with them this summer at the ranch, the ranch in California that Laurel's parents, my wife's parents, developed uh, from scratch. Here they are uh, up on the right there, Buster and Buckley, back in the back row, the black and white dog, that's Raider. And uh, the little thing up front there, that's, uh, that's Levi. And uh, they're actually, uh, they actually are more, uh, yeah, Levi's a chihuahua with something mixed in there. We don't know what it is. But, uh, but there are actually more dogs there. And if you go to the next uh, photograph, you'll see uh, there's Patsy down front. Uh, she's the white dog there. And, uh, you know, there's some other dogs back there. There's another dog, uh, Mickey, especially I'll focus on later on. Uh, but let's have a look. But, but uh, these are the most blessed dogs on the face of the earth. Trust me. Most blessed dogs, first of all, because of where they live. They live on this ranch, which is just incredible and beautiful. And they roam free. They have total access. They just roam the ranch. They have hills to climb. They have orchards to run through. They have horses and mules to hang out with. They have squirrels and rabbits and coyotes to chase whenever they feel like it. They have a pickup truck to ride in the back of when it comes by. They have lakes to swim in. They have people who work on the ranch and live there who stop to pet them. They have plenty of food. They're, they're in doggy heaven there because of that. But they're also the most blessed dogs because they have each other. Initially, you know, they lived in different uh, places, different homes around the ranch, off the ranch, whatever. But after a while, they all ended up together at one house on the property. And they settled in together, that, the house that uh, Laurel's brother lives in, one of Laurel's brothers. And they became a pack they became a friendly pack, and they're actually uh, best friends. It's amazing to just see them love each other and enjoy each other and just work together as a pack. And I was amazed. Uh, we were there this summer, and uh, uh, Raider is the alpha dog. Raider is the big alpha dog, and, and he's also, you know, the one who's always on guard duty. The others are goofing around. He's always out checking out, and if he barks, then the rest of them come running and that kind of thing. But he's definitely the big dog. And of course, Levi is, is the little dog, and he's actually the newest. He was actually found abandoned at an A&W stand somewhere on an interstate. Somebody brought him back to the ranch. And he's young, and he's, uh, he's all over the place, and he's yappy. He jumped out of the canoe once while we we're there and then figured out he really couldn't swim all the way to shore. So he's just, he's just a mess. But, you know, so, so Raider, I'm watching this one day there, and Raider comes back from, you know, saving the ranch for the third time that day, and he's totally exhausted and he just flops on the ground, and he's sweating, and he's exhausted, and he's just laying there. And here comes Levi. And Levi's just young and yappy, and he's all over Raider. You know, he's like biting. He's not really hurting, but, you know, he's biting and scratching and all that, trying to play. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not going to end well, you know. Alpha dog, king of the, the, the ranch, and the new dog, who's, who's just a little problem maker. But I just sat there and watched as Raider just, you know, for minute after minute after minute, just let this go on and just kind of every once in a while when it got a little annoying, just sort of pawed away, but just let it all happen. And I thought, this is incredible. I mean, all these dogs to come together in the first place and then just to take in another dog who's so different than all the rest of them. It's just, they're, they're just incredible. As I thought about that, you know, the first thing I was thinking, honestly, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool if the world worked like that? <laughs> and then the second thing I thought is, wouldn't it be really great if churches really worked like that too? Because churches don't always 
necessarily work like that. Listen, God made, uh, God made humans to live in unity and to thrive together in unity. But sin brought an end to that. But in Christ, we can actually come back to unity. We can, we can have that unity recovered in the family of God. If, if we understand what that unity really is and if we follow God's plan for it, that's something we want because it not only makes for peace between us, but we truly thrive individually and even better together. So we're going to learn about that today here in the book of Acts. Acts 1 tells us some important things that happened between Jesus' resurrection and the beginning of the first Christian church of Jesus Christ that happened on the day of Pentecost. So that means uh, Acts chapter 1 focuses on a, a period of 50 days. The first 40 of those days uh, which, in which Jesus met with his disciples periodically and instructed them and gave them uh, direction. We were reading in uh, Acts 1 last week. We kind of covered an aerial view of the chapter and focused on fresh starts as we begin our new ministry year here at Northwest Hills and many of us, of us beginning new seasons of life. We're not, we won't go back and read it all, but I want to read a portion again because this is what we want to focus on today in Acts 1, beginning at verse 12. In verse 12, here's what we, we read about. Then they, that would be the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So this is focusing on the, on the last 10 days of that 50-day period. Jesus has already gone. He's back with uh, God the Father. He's not going to be on earth for a while. So they returned to Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me, verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. That's a different Judas than Judas Iscariot. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along uh, with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, were there together. And he said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Let's skip a few verses down. Go to 21, where Peter, after a little parenthesis in his talk there, says, therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, we've got to replace Judas. We need 12 of us. And so they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbath, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven. As we look at this, uh, this section here, one of the things that this shows us is really that, that from the very beginning, even before the church officially begins, that, that one of the defining marks of the early church of Jesus Christ was unity. Unity. The, the group of believers that was there, they were together, and they were one they were one. And that oneness was a key reason why they were able to become actually that first local congregation of the universal church of Jesus Christ. And why after they received from God the gift of the indwelling of the, of the Holy Spirit, they were able to, to launch then the mission given to them by Jesus and uh, to go and make disciples, 
of all the nations and to raise up more new congregations worldwide. It was that unity that really enabled them early on to be growing Christians and maturing Christians, strong Christians, courageous Christians, loving Christians, ready for effective ministry Christians, world-changing Christians, despite all the challenges and difficulties ahead of them, and as we'll see shortly, to be joyful Christians in the midst of all that as well. So where did that oneness, where did that unity come from? How did they actually get it? Well, we know it came from their connection to Jesus from his teaching of them, from his care of them, from his praying for them, from his guiding of them, his shaping of them, his ongoing devotion to them, his attention to them, all of which, by the way, he still does for us if we're willing to let him. But Jesus trained them to be one. And so they were, they were many of them, just ready to take off with this. And, and on their side, they did their part. They learned from Jesus. They followed him, meaning they submitted to him. They received correction from him because, remember, there were times where they did not show a oneness of a of, 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 uh, group there. And they, they were corrected by him. They took it, and they just continued to maintain devotion to him just as he was devoted to them. Some think that Christians can never truly be united. And sometimes we think that because we've been in a Christian fellowship or something where you said, wow, there was no unity there. And you know other people who maybe have been in similar situations. But we can be one in connection with Jesus if we do our part. Jesus, you know, actually made it much easier for them and for us uh, today. Because within days of what we're just reading about here, the followers of Jesus would become literally, and I, I mean that literally, spiritually united to Christ and to each other when the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had promised would come, would, would be poured out upon them. That happened on the day of, of Pentecost, essentially 10 days after they, they got back to, uh, to Jerusalem there. We'll read about that another time in Acts chapter 2. But when that happened, the Holy Spirit came that day for the first time to actually indwell every true follower of Jesus Christ. And from that day onward, he has come again and again to indwell every disciple of Jesus and to empower and to help them spiritually. He still does it today. All the Christians up till now, all those living today, all those who will become Christians will have the Holy Spirit in them. And so because of that, we are spiritually united, literally spiritually united to Jesus. It's one of the things that makes us so secure in our eternal salvation. But by virtue of that, you understand we're all then spiritually united to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We like to throw around those terms. Hey, we're brothers and sisters. We kind of meet it. We sort of think of that, you know, symbolically. But the reality is, if we all share the same spirit, then we are connected as brothers and sisters, literally, in Jesus Christ. But unity that's lived out daily in real tangible ways still has to happen. It still, it still has to come because it's not automatic. We may literally be united spiritually, but in living that out in daily life with each other, that is not an automatic thing. Some of you know that because you, you've been part of, you know, you've lack of unity in your life. You felt like I didn't have it with others. Some others didn't have it with you, maybe. You know, I read a long time ago a, a story about a church that actually uh, was, was going well. They ended up, though, uh, being at odds. The congregation was at odds with each other. They eventually split into two churches that, that never fellowshiped with each other again. And the, the, issue, the issue that drove them apart was they couldn't agree when they all said the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Prayer together on the worship day. They couldn't agree on, on whether they would, they would say, forgive us our debts, or whether they would say, forgive us our trespasses. And, they, and an argument grew up over that little distinction about which word they were going to use in reciting the Lord's Prayer, and it ended up dividing the whole church in the end. 
That was the catalyst, at least. Of course, that didn't really divide them. They divided themselves over a little tiny issue like that. Someone once said that, you know, peace is just a moment in history when everyone stops to reload. And we kind of, we, we kind of think about that like that's kind of how the world works, you know. Peace just means we're just all of a sudden everybody's taking a break for a minute because we just have this, this concept that there can never be really uh, true unity, but, but it actually, actually can happen. We can, we can actually enjoy that if we, uh, if we will, will take it seriously, if we will uh, actually get involved and, and you know, do, the, do the worship that we're supposed to be doing. Well, these, these Christians there, they chose to do this. They, they pursued it. They acted on it, and that's what you got to do. You have to decide, I'm choosing it, I'm pursuing it, I'm going to act on this for it to be real and significant. And these earliest Christians did that even before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here. Even before that, Luke uh, makes known to us that here, and, and we won't take time to break all this down, but if you go back and read through this, you'll see the unity they had here. They had unity, just in this section of Scripture, we see that early on they had unity in obedience to Christ. They had unity in worship. They had unity in prayer. They had unity in caring for one another. They had unity in serving one another and serving God together. They had unity in following godly leaders, unity in making decisions together, unity in focusing on the mission that Christ had for them and readying themselves to take on that mission. All of that is seen here in Acts chapter 1. And of course, we see it fleshed out in, in greater ways as we read on in the, in the book of Acts. But, but here we see it already present. And that's what real unity among Christians is all about. Let's make sure we're clear on a couple of things. First of all, unity among Christians is not merely agreement about theology and doctrine and beliefs. Don't get me wrong here. Theology and doctrine and beliefs, that's important. We need to believe the right things. We need to believe the truth that God has given us. And so we want to know accurately what's in Scripture. And we want to hang on to that. And we don't want to let false teachers lead us astray. So that's an important thing. But, but unity, sometimes Christians think, well, unity is if we'll just all start believing the same thing, then we'll have unity. But I've known of and been part of churches where everyone in them had the, the doctrine, uh, doctrinal theological agreement, and yet the Christians there were still not united. So you can have agreement on, on belief and still not be one. Unity also isn't merely about uh, being on the same page about ministry goals and plans of organization or style of worship or whatever it is that sort of makes your church unique, the congregation that it is. I've known of and been part of churches where, where that, that sort of unity was also present. People agreed on the style of worship, the direction of our church, how we're organized, all that. But there was still not unity there. There was dissension still in the church. And so we can't say, well, if we're all in agreement on that, we're united. Agreement about such things doesn't, doesn't mean you are. And, and consider this also. Unity is not merely Christians not causing trouble or not fighting with each other. Because I've known of and been part of churches in which there was no outward warfare or quarrels or bad behavior going on, at least to extremes, you know. But there was also no unity because what was happening, there was sort of a passivity a lack of attention and inactivity among a number of people in the congregation. Because those people were either apathetic, they just didn't really care, church was sort of ritual for them, or sometimes it was just because they were resistant to leadership uh, or to the direction of the ministry or whatever, or sometimes they just didn't like some folks who were a, a part of the church. And so they would still attend, but, but basically they were uninvolved, they were unparticipating, and they were holding back. And those, those folks thought of themselves as keepers of the peace and preservers of the unity. 
I could maybe agree that they were keepers of the peace, but they certainly weren't preservers of unity because they actually were hinderers to unity. Because if you read the scripture, you understand this. Unity is not merely the absence of conflict. It's the presence of proactive edification. Do you know what edification is? It's a word that appears often in the New Testament about the church. Edification means building up, building up. In, in, the, in the Christian family, we are to be those who build up other believers individually. And we're to build up the church as a whole. That kind of unity is everyone contributing positively to the success of the church's mission. That's real unity. And so just holding back and doing nothing, not being a troublemaker, well, God bless you for not being a troublemaker, but don't think you're about unity because unity is positive. Unity is not neutral. It's a positive thing. And you're either positive or you're not. You're either neutral or negative. On the other hand, but unity can exist and it can be very positive. Some of you know from my past stories about my family, my mother and father spent a lifetime in ministry. And some of that was in, in church ministry, but the vast majority of it was in what they called in their day childcare work, which meant basically they worked in, in homes and places where, where uh, children were brought in who were abandoned or whose parents could not afford to take care of them or you know, they had other uh, issues and problems. And my parents were very deeply into that ministry. Well, in their early years, as they were getting into that, they uh, ended up really by God's leading to a place called Blue Ridge School in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. It was a boarding school, but not a, a boarding school for rich kids, you know, to go and, and get all the best. It was uh, planted there by, uh, by uh, members of the Episcopal Church. And, uh, and the, the Episcopal Church put it there to take in kids from the mountains of Virginia who, who, were, who were poor, who weren't cared for, who would not get an education. Some others from the, the bigger cities would t- sometimes make it over there too and join in when they're really needy kids or very troubled kids. And so my parents, as they were moving up and they were, they were beginning to get in that ministry and be trained by it, they, were, they became house parents in that school. Well, the headmaster of that school became a mentor for my father. He was an Episcopalian pastor, and his name was, was Dewey Loving. Great name for a guy who's in ministry, right? Loving was his last name. So it was Dewey Loving. And Dewey Loving just became a man that my dad greatly respected. And till the day my dad died in his 80s, he never called the man by his name Dewey. He always talked about Mr. Loving because Mr. Loving was always the mentor for him. But in turn, Mr. Loving uh, developed a, a real relationship with my dad as a young man. Mr. Loving would, would not only run the, the school there in the Blue Ridge Mountains, but he would sort of do a circuit of, of preaching there to the very small churches around there in the mountains. And he began to send my dad around to be a preacher in those churches as well. Now, what makes that unusual is this. My dad was not an Episcopalian. My dad was the opposite of Dewey Loving. Dewey Loving was part of the Episcopalian church that was high church and ritual and formality and beautiful ways of doing services, you know, and and just that, that whole high church atmosphere. My dad grew up poor in the South. He grew up in Southern Baptist churches, the difference in styles, the difference in backgrounds, education, money between Dewey Loving and my dad was huge as far as it could be. But these two men got along incredibly. And um, after my dad died, you know, I kind of collected different things of his. And one of the things I ended up with was a book of common prayer. I just grabbed it when I saw it one time, brought it home from his belongings. But when I opened it up, I actually found an inscription in the front. And this was what Dewey Loving gave my father on the day that my father left that ministry and went and started his own children's home for the very first time. And this was the the inscription on the front. It's addressed to my dad, and it says, in appreciation 
for all you have meant to us Episcopalians with love and prayers for a fruitful ministry, signed Dewey Campbell Loving, Blue Ridge School, St. George, Virginia. And then on the bottom it says, see page 509. Well, I had to see page 509. And on page 509 you find Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and joyful a thing it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Two men who were so different in so many ways, who became such excellent friends, who had such a great impact on each other's life. And why did that happen? Because of the unity they had in Jesus Christ. Because of that unity that was there. You see, that, that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. But that kind of thing happens. That's real unity. That's real unity. When Christ is at the center. That's what the Christians in Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost were practicing. Notice this in verse 14. These all with one mind, it says, verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. If you have an NIV translation, I just read that from the NAS translation, New American Standard. But if you have a New International Bible translation, it just says they were all joined together constantly in prayer. But the NAS translation is much truer to the original text. It's, it's not simply there that, uh, that the words say they were together praying, which NIV kind of implies. They, they came together praying. But they were praying with one mind, literally. That's an important word there, or two words in our English translation. It means they were together without dissension. They were together without division. They were together, on the other hand, with total harmony of purpose. They were, they were all on the same page there. They were pursuing the same goal. They were helping each other to reach that goal together. In the original Greek language text, there's just one Greek word present which translates our, uh, our words with one mind. And that word is used 11 times in the New Testament. And Luke, who's the author of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, uses it 10 of those 11 times. It becomes a favorite word of his that he uses to describe something very unique. Very unique. It describes, as it's translated elsewhere, often in the New Testament, of people being in, quote, one accord. One accord. Not a little Honda, but, but in one accord being together, like we're all on the same page here. And that's that word that he uses of one mind. The Apostle Paul uses similar words to define that real unity and to stress its importance. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, for instance, where he says, conduct yourselves in a, manny, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in, get this, one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He goes on in chapter 2 to write this. Make my joy complete, he says, by being of the same mind, united in the same, or maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. One purpose. One of the Greek phrases that Paul uses in those verses could easily be translated, be souls together. Souls together. In our day and age, we would we'd probably say something like, be souls knit together to one another. But literally, be souls united. That's unity. That's unity of heart and mind and spirit. But, but what's it around? That's an important question. What is this unity around? It's around the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. See, this is where we go wrong sometimes. We, we start defining unity, but we're defining it of, uh, as revolving around something else other than Christ. 
No wonder we never become unified as Christ intended us to. Because the unity of Scripture is this. It's a unity around the person of Christ. Real Christian unity is heart, mind, and spirit uh, 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 together in one around that person of Christ. Who is who? Who is he? He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the hope of the world. He's the only one. And so our unity is in him, and our unity is for him. That's why we're united. And it's for all that he's about. And when we have that that central person, Christ, and that's the, the core of our unity, then we can have real unity. So practicing unity, meaning, you know, that we have our souls together, we're on the same page. Well, how does that become played out in real life? Well, it's just what you see here in Acts 1. We summarize it this way. The actions would be this, worshiping Christ. That as we worship Christ, we have that, that commitment to worship him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. When we're in here in a, in a corporate worship service together, we're worshiping in that way. We have that, that unity of, of heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the one we're living for. We were singing that in songs, right? He's the one we're, we're living for, Jesus Christ. So we worship him. And, we, you know, we do that together. But also when we go out from here in, in, in these places, whether we go to school or work or we're going out tomorrow to a lake to swim or whatever, that, that no matter where, if someone could come around and they had this, you know, special spiritual camera from God to see what we were doing, that when they would run across a Christian, they would go, okay, there's a person who's worshiping God, heart, soul, mind, and strength in the way that they're living their life today. And there's one there, there's one over there, there's one across town there, and oh, there's another one, and there's another one. That's the kind of unity, being on the same page, uh, that, that you see here in Acts 1, where they, they're worshiping. They're all doing the same thing. Part two would be this. They're living under his lordship. They're living under his lordship. They're together living according to his standards. What are his standards for how we live our life? If you live by it, that's the unity of the spirit. And we're all doing that together when we're together in unity. That includes, of course, the standards of how we we treat one another, which leads to the third thing we see here, the third action of what it means to really live out unity. It means to love one another. Love one another. Remember Jesus' words? He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's an important part. That you love one another even as I have loved you, Jesus said, that you also love one another. And he went on to say, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. This is how you're going to be really recognized as a disciple of Jesus if you have love for one another, Jesus said. So if, if at the center is Jesus, and, and because of him, we're loving each other as Jesus loved us, that's unity. And then one more thing you see here in, in Acts chapter 1, and that, of course, is serving him together, pursuing the mission he has given to every disciple, to be light in a dark world, to go and be witnesses for, from, uh, from the center of Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth, to go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the mission Jesus gave. And when we're on the same page for that, that's unity. That's the unity. That's the unity that revolves around Jesus. And we can actually do that. We see it's not something like, well, I just can't get my arms around unity. That's it. That's it. And we can get that and we can enjoy the tremendous blessings of living in that unity. But what we have to remember is it's not automatic. It's not automatic. You have to choose it. You have to pursue it. You have to act for it. When it comes, I have to decide I'm going to, to do unity in this way. And then you have to keep it up. Because you can be going along and then suddenly find yourself, hey, I'm not very unified anymore because I'm not doing these things. Jesus isn't at the center. I'm using a different standard of unity. I'm using my description of how I think church should be or my, my reason for wanting this or whatever. 
If you're going to have that real unity that makes a real difference, you've got to do the real unity of Jesus. And, and here's what that means. If you really want to succeed in that, then you have to choose community. You have to choose community. If you want unity, you've got to choose community. Community. In the dictionary, I looked up in the dictionary the word community because we use that word around here a lot. And, and I looked it up in the dictionary. And in the dictionary, the first definition of unity in the dictionary I looked up, it was, I think, one of the American Heritage College dictionaries. And, and one of the first definitions of, of unity was this, a group of people having common interests. That's a community of people. If those people have common interests, they're defined as a community of people. Now, that definitely describes Christians, doesn't it? We have Christ in common. We have salvation in him in common. We have God's word that he has given us in common. We have his mission in common, and we could go on with with other things, right? So in that respect, we are a community already. But then you go a little further in the dictionary list of definitions, and here's one of the ones that pops up again near the top. It says community is, and it lists three words. I'm just quoting it, no change from what it read strictly in the dictionary. The three words it says community is sharing, participation, fellowship. Catch those. Sharing, participation, fellowship. That's the words from the dictionary. Now, when you think about that, you would say, well, that should describe followers of Christ, right? People who have Christ in common should be sharing, participating, fellowshipping with one another. But we all know that doesn't always happen, right? Many Christians don't truly share or participate or fellowship much with other Christians. And that's one big reason why congregations then aren't unified and why then many individual Christians aren't the type of Christians we were reading about in Acts 1 here, where we said you can look and see they're growing, they're maturing, they're strong, they're courageous, they're loving, they're effectively ministering already, and they're becoming world-changing Christians. You, you don't get that uh, uh, from, uh, from leaving out sharing, participating, in fellowship. Their unity in Acts uh, chapter 1, their spiritual health was founded and it was grounded in that connection to Christ. And it would always be grounded in that. But it ended up flourishing because they actually practiced community defined as sharing, participation, and fellowship. We see this in a couple of ways. Uh, we, We look at this, for instance. It's obvious, first of all, that they were participators. They were participating in the community. We know that first, by the way, not just from the book of Acts, but from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 53, which happens to be the very last uh, uh, sentence in the the Gospel of Luke. And remember, Luke, the man, writes the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and they're really companion books. And so here's how Luke uh, ends ends the book of uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, He says that, that Jesus, you know, met with them, told them to go back to Jerusalem, and it says when they went back to Jerusalem... They were continually in the temple praying, uh, praising God. There was a temple of worship in Jerusalem. They were continually in the temple praising God. So what we see here is that as these folks gathered together, these, these Christians there in Jerusalem, um, they, they gathered together. They went to worship services, just like you're doing today. They basically went to worship in a central place where worshipers came together for worship. In our lingo today, uh, we would say worship services, or, you know, like we, we talk about with the kids sometimes, or we're going to big church today, you know. We go, this is big church in here because we come together in a big group. Well, they were essentially doing that uh, together. They were, were worshiping in that way. And by the way, that's always good. That's always important. 
we, we benefit from the whole big group, being with the big group. There's value in that because we have so much to offer each other and we're so encouraging to each other. And we hear and discuss and worship in the same way together. And that helps us get on the same page. But that's not typically, though, where we're able to have deeper community with one another, that deeper sharing and participation and, and fellowship. But in Acts 1, we learned here when we read this that they weren't just going to the temple for, for worship. They were, they were gathering also in tighter quarters. It says here they were gathering in an upper room, an upper room. That just means an upstairs room in a house in Jerusalem. And that was where they spent a good deal of their time praying, praying. So that was a, a bit of a structured time, but it was going to be a lot less structured and formal than going to the temple. Certainly, they probably had, had times there where they, they prayed together, probably large groups, small group, individually, whatever. But that was more informal. And that was where they could interact more personally. That room is identified also, interestingly, as the same place where the apostles, at least, where the apostles, at least, and maybe many, many more of them were actually staying at the time where they were living. Remember, they, they weren't from Jerusalem. They had fled Jerusalem after Jesus was, was uh, uh, crucified. They were hunted men, essentially, for a while, and then everybody just kind of forgot about them. They came back. They found this upper room. They, they settled in that upper room. And so they prayed, but you have to, to get the picture right. This was their home, essentially. And so here are the, these Christians gathering together, and they're praying, and undoubtedly, though, they're, they're talking to each other. They're getting to know each other. They're encouraging one another. They're making plans together, and, and who knows what else. But they were doing this together in unity. For that to happen, one of the things that meant is that they were sharing. That's one of those words about, about community, right? They had to be sharing in order to do this because they were sharing this one large room together. And you start asking yourself a question. Where did they get this room? And, and, you know, there's a possibility. It says there were 120 of them, about 120 total there at the time in Jerusalem, these Christians. And it almost implies that the whole 120, if they weren't living in that room together at the time, were at least using it as their, their common gathering space. Where did they get this large room? I mean, not many of us have a room for 120 in our homes today, and their homes were much smaller, right? So where did they get that? Especially since most of them weren't from Jerusalem. Only a handful of them had had financial resources. Somebody had to share that room with them. So a sharing was going on. Well, who was cooking the meals? Well, obviously, they had to be doing it themselves. Resources would have to be shared. They had to help in cooking and cleaning up and and so on. And and, and so it was a, a unique time for them as Christians in a number of ways, but at the same time, they were basically doing what? They were doing life together. They're just doing life together, even as they're preparing themselves for and awaiting the start of the church and the start of their outreach mission. It also appears here that they did what we call church business, that they had a congregational meeting, so to speak. Sometimes we say we're having a business meeting at church. And and so we see them doing essentially something like that because Peter calls this congregational meeting to address the matter of of filling the position previously held by Judas, the betrayer. And the the leaders come together and they take the lead and they call the meeting and they they, uh, 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 gather the congregation. They say, this is what we're doing. Here's what we're going to be doing. We're trying to figure out who's best and we're going to be seeking this. And the congregation works along with them and then then the, uh, the, the apostles come back. They make the final decision on it. The congregation gets all behind it. That's, by the way, how we select our elders here at Northwest Hills, too. But, but that was a practice of community is what you want to catch. It's, it's fellowship. It's, and, you know, another word for fellowship, you want a synonym for, for fellowship? 
partnership. It means people joining in partnership with others. And that's what you see happening with these Christians. They were saying, we're partners with this in Jesus. We're participating, we're sharing, we're in fellowship. And what you understand is that's community. That's community. And here's the deal. When that happens, that, that's not only acting in unity, but, but what it's doing is it's cementing relationships. And it's, it's strengthening our unity when we are, are in that, that situation where we know each other and when we're sharing together and when we're participating together. That's when, when the relationships come tightly together and the unity of the church, the whole church, is built even stronger. I was reading in uh, uh, the Greatest Generation book, and the greatest generation about that generation from the Depression and World War II era and what happened to them in their, their young adult lives during that period. And uh, if you've read that book, you know, they highlight a number of different individuals and their, their unique stories and the impact that all of that had on them. And President George W. Bush, no, George H.W. Bush, I got that wrong in the first service, George H.W. Bush, the, the first Bush president, Bush 41 they call him, right? The Bush 41, he's in there, and he describes his military service. He was a pilot on an aircraft carrier in World War II. If you know his story, he crashed, he was shot down, got rescued by a submarine, made it back, whole you know, heroic story. But he tells in the book about how, as a young lieutenant, when he wasn't flying, one of, the, one of his jobs on the ship was to read all of the outgoing mail of the enlisted personnel because it all had to be censored. They all had to read it to make sure no one inadvertently was revealing their location or the size of their ship or whatever. They didn't want that information to get in enemy hands. So an officer had to read it. And so he was responsible to read the mail of the enlisted person personnel. And as he, as he uh, uh, reflected on that, here, here's a quote from the book from, uh, from Bush. He said, As I did my duty and read other guys' mail, I learned about life. I learned about true love, and I learned about heartbreak, and I learned about fear and courage, and I learned about the great diversity of our country. The sailors would ask about things in their letters like the harvest or fishing or the heat in the cities. And when I would see a man whose letter I had censored, I would look at him differently. I would look at him with more understanding. I gained insight into the lives of my shipmates, and I felt richer for it. See, there's something about when we know each other and when we understand each other that just cements our relationships with each other. That's unity and maturity that flourishes because of community. In the same way, uh, our community here, who we are as Christians, will flourish if we too are, are actually engaging in this kind of community if we're practicing it. But remember, it's not automatic. We've got to choose it. And that means each one of us has to. And even if we as pastors or elders or whatever other leader said, you must do this, it's only going to make a difference if you decide that this is valuable, this is important, this is how I'm going to flourish, and you do it. You know, we, we actually already have a number of ways that you can begin doing that here. You're in one of them right now because you're worshiping people that you see every week, perhaps. But also, you know, there are things like interaction groups, Bible studies, there are ministry teams that meet regularly. There are outreaches we do together with others. There are prayer meetings that we hold regularly, you know, one coming up next week. Uh, there are congregational meetings we have. But, but that, that uh, community won't happen with us unless we choose to say, I'm going to be a part of that. I, I will sacrifice the time. I will put that appointment on my calendar. I will be there. I'll be there regularly. 
I'll, I'll do it. I'll choose it. I'll pursue it. I'll act for it. I'll keep it up. That's our decision. And that's what we, we have to realize. That is so important for us. What we're doing this year is, is looking around and saying, how can we enhance that? How can we create more opportunities? How can we help all of us together to, to have more community so that, uh, so that we flourish then in, in unity? And the, and the way we do that is, well, we've got different ways. Josh is actually going to come, Pastor Josh. I'm going to ask him to come on up and just, uh, just tell us here a little bit about, uh, about something going on. And you've already heard about it if you were here last week. But uh, go for it. All what's right. What's happening? What's new? Morning. Doing all right? Yeah. Praise God. Um, I said this last week. I'll say it again. Um, for the Christian... And, and not just for the Christian, really for anyone, it's not up to us to decide if we need community or not, right? That, that's, that's not on the table. That's not up for grabs in the same way that, that you don't get to decide if you want to eat or not, right? You don't eat, you're going to die. Some of us are feeling that right now, amen? Right? I'm hungry. My wife sent me a little note halfway through. She's like, I brought you a snack. I'm like, it's in the fridge. I need it now. <laughs> Community is not an option. We need it. God created us to be known. I don't think that this is a hard sell. I don't think for me to get up here and say, we need to be known by one another. That's not hard to sell, yeah? We want to be known. We want to belong. We want people in our lives to know us, right? We need that. But as I said last week, and and as we're preaching through this, we know that our community, namely with Christ, is broken, and we need that restored. So like Andy said, what we're trying to do as a church is we are, as pastors, equipping. We're providing a place, we're providing a context that says, hey, let's get after Jesus through community together. right? So community groups, you'll see this little phrase, be the church. Really what that is, um, is a compilation of our whole purpose statement. I mean, we'll, we'll get into it later, but it's, it's really this idea of one family, one passion, all people. Be the church. That's what community groups are about. Right, so, so let me let me give you the few the ins and outs as to what they are. I don't need to give you the why we need them because Andy's been doing it up here. He's given us the why. And if I did that, we'd be here till dinner. And Lord knows we need that lunch, right? Lord knows we need community. So, so what are these groups? What I'm, I'm going to answer the who, the how. The where, the why, all those good questions. So, so who, who's welcome to community groups? Right? Anyone. Anyone can come from college to you've passed the first, maybe the second gate into glory. You're welcome. We're all welcome to come here. That's who's welcome. Anyone who, who wants to join a group is welcome to come. Now, now the big question, the what? Right? Well, what are they? We've, we've heard about them a little bit. You know, if, if you've read the newsletter the last couple of weeks, you've seen it, you heard some guy up here last week yelling, get in a community group. Well, what are these groups? Right? What, what are they? I'll, I'll say this. They're, they are groups of six to 14 people meeting in homes, getting after Jesus together. Right? At, at the heart of them, we have serving, study, accountability, prayer, outreach, fellowship, and food. Really what we're doing is we're getting around a dinner table, we're enjoying a meal together, and we're saying, hey, let's live life together. Let, let's be on mission for the gospel together. Let's, let's know each other. Let's be known. Let's be a community of people who really love and care for one another, because that's what Christ has called us to do. That's what we're getting after in community groups. And what we're doing is, is we're mixing it up here, so, so old and young together. 
Right? So the young can learn from the old and the old can learn from the young. It, it's a great mix. Right? That's, that's not going to happen in every group. Some groups will be just similar life stages and that's great. We're in different places. Right? E- each group's going to look different. And why is that? Because we're different. Yeah? Like I'm very different than, than you and you are different from someone else. We're all different. And, and because of that, there's, there's a beautiful uniqueness that each group can kind of form a little bit of their own identity as we're chasing after the gospel together. That's a great, great thing. Well, the, the primary vehicle through which we're going to be fueling really um, what we're doing in community groups is going to be sermon-based. So what that means is that means that um, Andy and I do a lot of work and whoever's preaching in preparing sermons. And we want to, what we want to do is we want to give you that. We want to say, here, here's the application to what we're learning on Sunday morning. So then we're going to, in our community, we're going to get after that. We're going to say, okay, I've been learning this and this and this, and this is how God has been using His Word in my life, and let's share that with one another. It's, it's a beautiful piece. There'll be time and seasons when we'll be getting away from that, but the primary means which we study is going to be really getting after what we're doing here Sunday morning, and that would be a great way to kind of pull us all together. We'll be on that same page of we're learning the same thing together here. So then the, the where and the when, right? We're starting these September 30th. Let's go to the next slide here. So group Connect, that's, that's going to be September 30th at night here in this room from 7 to 8. Really, if you are interested at all, if you, if, if anything's going on saying, yeah, I, I do need to be known here. I, I need to belong. Uh, come. You, you, you need it. Child care is provided. It'll be a great place. This is where you're going to actually uh, hear more about it, not only from myself, but from some of the other leaders. We have almost 20 of them right now who are opening up their homes and saying, yeah, let's do this. I will lead a group of people in pursuit of the gospel here. So come Sunday night. There's child care provided. Um, great way to get involved here. Um, lastly, the why, again, that's, I'm, I'm not giving the why, but it is the most important thing. So Andy's going to finish this out here um, with the why because we got to get to lunch here. So I'll, I'll shut up. Um, but I'll say this one more time. Um, without food, we're dying. Amen? Without community, we're already dead. So here's our opportunity to start living a little. Come Join, be known. Let's chase Jesus together. Andy. Yeah, give him a round of applause. Well, you know, I think what we really need to do, just to round this off, is just talk a little bit about when Josh said everybody is welcome, everybody can come, because we really need to think about everybody. And it's it's helpful here as we close just to think about everybody being, uh, who was everybody who was there in Jerusalem? And that maybe helps us get a little bit of perspective because remember verse 12 says after Jesus' departure, they returned to Jerusalem from the, the, the area called Mount, uh, the Mount called Olivet, and they, they came together. But, but who was there? Well, we know those 11 apostles, 12 minus Judas, who, who was not present any longer, uh, came back to Jerusalem. But there were many more followers of Jesus who, who gathered together with them. Verse 15 indicates a gathering, it says, of, of about 120 individuals. Probably uh, we know for sure there were more disciples of Jesus in Galilee, but that was way far in the north. But there was 120 who were gathered together there in Jerusalem. So who were those others besides the the 11? Well, Well, we know that there were a number of them who were men, males, who had also been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. And we know that because when they went to to replace Judas, they had to figure out, okay, among all these people here who've been longtime disciples of Jesus, who was here from day one? And who also 
uh, at the same time also saw the resurrected Jesus, was a witness of that. And so we know there must have been a group of those men who had been with Jesus as followers for a long time, but just not as, as well known. There were other followers there uh, present as well. Now, we know along with the men very clearly that there were women there because it says right here in Acts chapter 1, the women were there. And the, the women, well, who were the women? Well, the women were, were women who became disciples of Jesus because not just men, but women also became disciples. And some of those disciples, we know, entered into a deeper ministry relationship with Jesus and the other disciples. We know that some of them traveled with Jesus regularly. We're told that a few of them who had means actually helped to support the ministry of Jesus, which for them probably meant they bought food for them. The picture is that some of these women actually ended up taking a a support role, an administrative role, whatever, from these probably guys who couldn't handle that very well themselves. Some are named specifically Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, Susanna, identified in the Gospel of Luke as being very tied in, as being part of a group of women who traveled from Galilee in the north all the way down on foot, remember, uh, to to, uh, Judea, to Jerusalem. Many of them were present, uh, saw Jesus crucified. Many of them, remember, also saw him resurrected. Some of them were the first ones to see the resurrection of Jesus. One of the great things about the Gospels, I won't get into it today, but just the, the way Jesus treated women, the way the, the apostles treated women, and uh, how Jesus made some of the first witnesses to his resurrection women. And he said, hey, women, go tell those other guys who are sulking over there what's really going on. Along with them, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is specifically mentioned among them. Interestingly, she's not venerated at all. She's just one of the crowd, but she's mentioned as being there. Luke also mentions in verse 14 something interesting. He says, the brothers of Jesus were there. Jesus had brothers. Yeah, technically half-brothers. But he had brothers. And, and you know, unlike the three kings from Orient or whatever, you know, that have fictitious names that we sing about or whatever, the, the names are actually recorded in Scripture for us. Jesus' half-brothers were named Joseph and Simon and Judas, also called Jude, and James. They had not believed Jesus at one point in their life. They thought Jesus, literally, you can read this in the Gospels, they thought Jesus was insane. They thought he might be demon-possessed. But they came around to believing in him. We know that at least two of the four did, probably all four, but two of the four because Jude wrote the book of Jude that we have in our New Testament. James is the James who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He wrote the book of James that we have in the New Testament. Probably after, probably James, his deal was sealed because we're told that Jesus had a personal one-to-one encounter with James after his resurrection. But you add all that up and you still fall far short of 120 people. So that leaves a lot more, scores more, who aren't named here. It's fun, people have speculated, well, who do you think could have been there? Lazarus? Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, because they kind of lived nearby to Jerusalem. They might have been there. Nicodemus, the the Pharisee who snuck away secretly because he didn't want anyone to know that he was meeting with Jesus and he had that private meeting with Jesus. Bartimaeus, maybe, the the man that was blind that Jesus healed. Joseph of Arimathea, maybe, the rich man who stood up and provided a tomb for Jesus after he was dead. We just don't know. There's lots of people. We don't know for sure, but most of them apparently were just ordinary folks who never received any special recognition as followers of Jesus. But all of those and and others made up the first community of Jesus. They became the first members of, of Jesus' first church. And so the community truly did include everybody, everybody. 
Everybody who had put their faith in Jesus and accepted his lordship. And the community is not just leaders. It's not just select insiders. It's all the followers of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, as Josh said, that's you. And here's what I really want to emphasize. It includes lots of different kinds of people, all sorts of people. You know, we don't have time this morning, but you could just go through the the 12 apostles and look at their backgrounds and and, uh, where they came from. and and how they behaved in their life. And you realize they were so different. They were such a diverse group. Some of them were blue-collar guys, and some of them were white-collar guys. Some of them uh, uh, were uh, were aggressive-type individuals. Some of them were were less aggressive-type. Some of them were were high energy. Some of them were not so much. Some of them, like uh, like Andrew, turns out to be, he was the guy who always went and figured out all the statistics and details and kept the paperwork and all that kind of stuff. And then you got Peter, who can't sit still for a minute. He always has to be doing something. He's out there. And their their backgrounds are entirely different. You think about about Matthew, also called Levi. So Matthew, Matthew used to work for the Roman government that was overruling Judea at that time. Well, he was one of the apostles. There was another apostle. He's called Simon the Zealot. The reason he's called Simon the Zealot is he belonged to a group called the Zealots who were totally committed to overthrowing the Roman Empire to the point of even going to violence to make it happen. Now, what do you think when those two guys started rooming together, when they became disciples of Jesus? It's kind of like putting a a Portland Green Party, uh, you know, person with a Texas Tea Party person, you know, on on one side or the other. But there these guys are, and they're, they're in unity because they have the unity around Christ. And all that, just to, to really point out, you know, the community of Christ is made up of all kinds of people. It's, it's unity, it's not uniformity. And so if you're not like someone else, that's okay. The only thing that God, that God really wants us to be together, all together, is Christ-like. But he made us differently. He made us unique. And he did that on purpose for his glory and the good of the church. And he's pleased when we enjoy our uniquenesses and we keep our uniquenesses and we dedicate our uniquenesses to his glory and his plans. And he loves it when we who are different come together. And he not only loves it because he thinks it's just great that we're doing that to his glory, but but because he knows this, which which is something we come to know. We all need each other. We all need each other as different as we are. We very much need each other. I told you I'd show you a picture of Mickey. I'm going to do this before I close. So Mickey's the other dog. There's me and Mickey at the ranch. And we're pretty cool, huh? We got our sunglasses because we hang out together. <clears throat> but Mickey and I have a reason why we wear sunglasses. Go to the next photo of us. So you notice Mickey doesn't have one eye. And if you know anything about me, the reason I'm squinting in that picture is the same reason I squint out here in the courtyard. Because I had a little bow and arrow accident when I was a kid. And so this eye here is only 50% functional. And when I get in bright light, I just can't keep it open. <clears throat> so Mickey and I had a little talk. We formed the uh, One-Eyed Dogs Club there at the ranch. <laughs> and we're inviting anybody else who wants to be part of our One-Eyed Dogs Club to come and be with us. But I just put that up there because, you know, we all have something in our lives where we just say, I'm different, I won't fit. That is not true in the Church of Jesus Christ. And we are committed here to being a unity together, even with all of our differences, and celebrate them. But it's only going to happen. It's only going to work if we get together on it, if we really live in community. That's what we want to make sure we're doing. There's old saying that people are lonely because they build walls instead of bridges. We're going to say, you know what? We're committed to building bridges, not walls. Lord Jesus, that's what we want to do. Thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for showing showing us it's possible, giving this snapshot in the book of Acts. We realize, Lord, there's so much more for us to learn about this. 
We also think, Father, we're already thinking through our schedules how we want this, but how sometimes it's scary to get in a group of people. We're thinking also about how busy we are and how we won't be able to just snap our fingers and make some of this happen. That for some of us, this is going to be a process of, of thinking about our priorities. It's going to be a process of readjusting our schedules and our calendars. We know that may take some time. Father, that's a little bit of a concern. How could we ever really do this? But Lord, we know when we commit all this to you, you help us. And so we're asking for that help today as we commit it to you. We're excited about the possibilities, Lord. And we look forward to what you'll do with us. And we remember, Lord, that this is not about us coming together in unity around us. It's coming together around unity in you. Lord, when we put you first, we always get the best. That's what we want. We seek it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing a last song together to Jesus.